What's happening, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Brokelhammer. So today I welcome Jordan No and Donna Emmett from ORA. What's up there, folks? Hey, how you doing? Thanks for uh, thanks for joining joining us. Jordan is the director of sales at ORA, and Donna is a sales rep. But before we get into the conversation with them, I want to thank the sponsors for the show, both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine. I really appreciate them supporting the live stream. And I also appreciate you viewers out there. I see there's a bunch of you coming into the live stream right now for tuning in. So as always, please spread the word. Hit that like button. Got 34 people watching right now and only seven likes. So let's catch up to the uh, to the uh, number of viewers in terms of likes so we can get more people watching the live stream. And as always, we always encourage um, comments and questions in the chat. So, uh, guys, um, thanks again for uh, for joining us. We were just talking before the uh, for the show that uh, you kind of missed the brunt of the uh, the hurricane that passed through Florida recently, right? Yeah, I mean, we were uh, very very lucky. Uh, it's always kind of a roll of the dice, um, but yeah, for us, it it was the, probably the best case scenario for a hurricane. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd imagine that's kind of a um, an interesting scenario, right? Down in Florida, you guys are uh, kind of prone to those big storms. What what kind of um, you know power backup setup do you folks have down there to kind of prevent any sort of um, you know major disaster if the power's out for a number of days? Uh, we've got a gigantic generator that can support <laughs> you know completely the entire facility. We've also got kind of more uh, smaller you know subsidiary ones for each of the different hatcheries. Um, We've got a very dedicated team that, you know, will come out here even with the the wind blown and the rain pouring down and making sure uh, things are plugged in, make sure water's running. Uh, it, it can get pretty hardcore. Yeah, I mean, you got to do what you got to do to keep the, uh, you know, keep the animals alive, right? Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, we just have a very passionate group of uh, people here who very much care. So ORA has been around... A long time. You guys are sort of like a, a pioneer, right, in terms of aquaculture, corals and clams and captive raised fish. But, uh, you know, there might be some out there that are not as familiar with you folks as I am. So maybe we should kind of start the, uh, the stream off with a um, maybe you guys giving a, um, an overview of the operation down there in terms of ORA and your facilities, types of products you have, etc. Yeah, I mean, really, the kind of quick and dirty uh history, if you will. Uh, back in 1996, we started uh, here on the Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute in uh, Fort Pierce, Florida. So for people who don't really know where that is, it's about two hours north of Fort Lauderdale or directly across the state from like Tampa. Um, and here we've been for these last uh, gosh, 26, 26 years, mm. um, just putting out all sorts of marine aquacultured ornamental fish for uh, not only kind of our domestic aquarists, but also worldwide demand for uh, marine aquaculture. So let's, um, you know, so you mentioned fish. Let's um, let's kind of like start with that part of the uh, the business. You know, how how um, how big is your operation compared to other types of operations that raise fish in the United States? What do you guys stand? Are you guys like the largest? I mean, I'd like to say that we are. I mean, I personally haven't been to kind of the other aquaculture facilities um, that do, you know, very similar uh, items that we do. Uh, but we're situated on eight acres here uh, on our campus, um, tens of thousands of gallons of water. We've got, at one point in time, to my understanding, with the largest land-based uh, coral greenhouse in the world. 
Um, so, I mean, I would say, interesting even the scale of the number of employees we have, we're, we're a pretty large organization for sure. So i got a couple of comments. Uh, Paul Graybeard Reef says, uh, I need some of the uh, classic SPS like a true ORA Pearlberry in my life. I, uh, that's one of my favorites. And um, Don't we all, yeah. We'll, uh, we'll get into the coral stuff. And uh, Peter T, will you be seeing more ORA flame angels in the future? Fingers crossed. I certainly hope so. Gotcha. Um, so in, in terms of like fish, your, your biggest um, type of fish is the clownfish, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would say that's probably the largest variety of fish that we produce, uh, but it certainly isn't the only variety of fish. I think that's a common misconception. Um, you know, based on our logo, a lot of people have the common misconception that that's what we kind of center our attention around um, and all that we produce. But in actuality, I mean, we are producing everything for beginner hobbyists all the way through advanced hobbyists um, and experience levels. You know, so starting with damsels, uh, you know, gobies, blennies, we're doing filefish, and then the more advanced kind of species with the dragonets, um, the angelfish, rabbitfish, uh, and even sharks. Um, Rajendra Bachu. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. Looking on from Trinidad, got my best breeding clownfish from ORA. I mean, the, the variety Fantastic. of clownfish. Yeah, the, the variety of clownfish <laughs> that you guys have is a uh, is amazing. I mean, how, how many different uh, types of clownfish do you guys uh, are currently breeding at this point in time? I think that number is like ever changing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, we're we're constantly doing different variants of designers. You know, uh, I think within the last year or so. We actually came out with the hybrid storm, which is a mix between an Ocellaris and a Percula. Um, yeah, so I think, what was our last number? I want to see somewhere around 150, but wow. yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of different designers out there, you know, subtle, subtle variations, larger variations, uh, cross species, uh, and it's ever expanding for sure. I mean, clownfish are like one of my favorite you know, um, species of fish to, uh, to have in my reef tank. What's your favorite, Keith? At, which, which one's my favorite? I would have to say the, um, the mocha storm. I have a, um, a pair of the orange, um, storm and the, uh, well, I'll say the orange and the mocha because I got a pair of those two. They, um, they, uh, they're in my peninsula tank and, um, I think they're awesome, awesome looking fish. I mean, I, um, I also have um, some Ocellaris clownfish. I, I, I don't even, I, you know, I also have a, um, what I got? A, I got a pair of um, Da Vinci clownfish. I'm assuming that's Da Vinci is an ORA. I mean, everything is like ORA, right? I mean, pretty much every clownfish out there, designer clownfish for the most part. Is that correct? Is anybody else doing this? I would say our, our version of that would be like a gladiator. Uh, there are some trade names that kind of get tossed around. Um, but a lot of stuff did or, uh, originate from here. I mean, I would say the Picasso that we got from the Solomons in around 2004 uh, really opened the door to a lot of different types of uh, designer clownfish. Um, the snowflake, uh, just that was kind of like the explosion of, of different varieties you could have kind of started right around that same time period out of here. Yeah, there was a woman named Donnie and she had her like, Donnie's Picasso's. Do you, does that ring a bell? That um, there was some breeder down I in North Carolina, North Carolina, I think? or somewhere. Yeah, was that a uh, an ORA? Um, you know, did she start with ORA um, 
what do you call it? Um, Lineage or broodstock? You know, I'll be honest, I, I, I'm not too familiar with kind of where her fish originated from. I know that she, I think, trademarked that fish or at least uh, attempted to at one point. Yeah. I mean, it, um, it, it's just amazing to me in terms of, um, you know, the different variations. Anything new in terms of clownfish coming around? I mean, any new, uh, like, uh, storm type of clownfish that's going to really kind of make a major splash? Or are you guys uh, keeping quiet on that sort of thing? And I would say just recently, our hailstorm is probably one of my most favorite fish that I see on the market right now. Um, it's just kind of a real nice minimalistic fish. You've got the white, you've got some, you know, you like the the mocha storm variety. I mean, you've got these spots that are very kind of ombre, burnt amber. Uh, just a, it's a gorgeous fish. So how, um, so you mentioned you guys are um, raising a lot more than just uh, clownfish. How do you guys determine what, what fish to raise captively? You know, is there a um, kind of a thing in the hobby where folks are really, you know, trying to get a certain fish that's maybe like a wild caught fish and now it's be becoming uh, difficult to catch that certain wild caught fish? Is, is, does that drive decisions in terms of what to raise captively or has that got nothing to do with it? It, it plays uh, in part to how we kind of determine what's going to be raised here. Um, you know, our our main objectives, I think there's three of them. One, um, you know, they have to produce on a commercial scale in order to meet the demand of the hobby and the industry. Um, and then sustainability, you know, are we going to be able to bring in broodstock for these fish when needed uh, to continue production? Um, and then I think overall success and how uh, the hobbyist is going to find success with those fish. Are they going to be difficult to keep uh, and raise or are they going to be um, fairly simple for the hobbyist once they leave our facility? Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, it's a very different world these days in terms of, you know, when you're going to a local fish store, you're shopping for fish online. And, uh, you know, the price of fish has just gone up so much because of freight costs. And I guess the COVID thing had a lot to do with it. Is, uh, has that impacted your operation at all in terms of what's been going on generally in the marketplace in terms of freight costs and COVID or no? I mean, kind of like what you're saying. I mean, the pandemic was really, really good for our industry, you know, in so many words. Um, but one of the benefits that I think that we had is that when airlines shut down from freighting in corals and fish from overseas, all those wild caught animals, uh, domestically, we were really on the only kind of shop in town with kind of the volume and the ability to, to provide a number of different species for these stores um, to stay in operation and all while keeping the kind of the costs down. Yeah, no, that, that, uh, that definitely makes sense. It's just, um, Amazing to me what uh, what's going on with some of the uh, the stuff with the with, with fish prices and, and availability. Yeah, I mean you've seen it over the years. I mean you said you were you've been in here for about thirty years. I mean it's it is funny how like the pendulum swings and you know the, the industry chooses one thing every year that's like the hottest most desirable thing. You know back in early two thousands it was like acans and then then it was zoanthids and micromusas. And then it, now the torch coral is like the thing to get. People have uh, opened their wallets to the most absurd prices for some of these torches. Um, 
All right, we got a coral question from Rolly's uh, Reef Ranch, but I'm going to actually um, ask you guys, uh, and we're going to get to that question, but um, Barry Gross Sr. has a uh, fish-related question. Um, I want them to be able to breed and sustainably produce all the reef hobbyists you know, kept fish. Ore is off to a great start. Um, all right, I'm not sure that's a question. <laughs> Maybe it was more of a statement. <laughs> um, all right, uh, here's another question for you for me. In, in terms of selling fish and in terms of the size of the fish that you guys sell, my understanding is that um, you sell um, fish only grown to full size. Is that correct? Uh, no, that is a weird uh, question, but no, it's not. We, uh, I would say the vast majority of the animals we sell are juveniles, actually. Okay. I don't, maybe I read that on your website. Maybe I read that someplace else, but I, uh, I was under the impression that you guys are only selling uh, full-grown um, um, size fish. But yeah, that, uh, that definitely makes sense. size fish would be uh, very expensive, both on the kind of the production side and, you know, believe it or not, the shipping side. Um, I think people would be shocked, like, how much it really costed to ship animals overnight. And, you know, a larger fish needs more water, which weighs more. Um, but juveniles, we tend to stick around the inch and a half size for most of our fish that we raise. So Blue Reef has got a question. Uh, what took so long to get other places to sell ORA? Glad to see Saltwater Aquarium now selling. I was only able to buy from Live Aquaria and they always, they're always out of the uh, stock. So yeah, where, where can folks, um, you know, get ORA stuff besides, um, local fish stores like online? Is it, um, for the most part, um, what, what vendors can they find your stuff on? I think we've definitely expanded uh, in the last year specifically. Uh, so hobbyists can now find ORA livestock on both saltwateraquarium.com, well, three actually, saltwateraquarium.com, algae barn. Most people go there for their live feeds um, and supplements. And then you also have Ocean's Garden. Correct, yeah. yeah. Which highlights you know, a lot of pretty much only aquacultured animals on their side. I mean, do you guys, would you guys say that local fish stores are pretty much the primary uh, source of, um, you know, your primary customers in terms of, you know, taking your, your fish versus online uh, retailers? Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, we 100%, you know, support the brick and mortar. I mean, they really are, they're the reason anybody's in the hobby. Um, so they are very, very important to kind of our, our business model and our relationships. Um... Here's another question, uh, Rashindra. Is it natural for a pair of gladiator clowns to produce Wyoming whites? So, I mean, can you crossbreed these uh, these fish? Is that done? Oh, sure. I mean, if it's certainly within the Ocellaris complex, any of those designers will be just fine. Uh, I mean, to them, they're just another Ocellaris. It doesn't really matter what they look like. Um, but it, you will be surprised kind of how genetics plays into it and kind of all the different patterns uh, that are possible kind of with mixed breeding, mainly because, you know, if you know anything about genetics, some of those patterns may be kind of locked in the DNA and you don't really know where that fish came from or what those parents came from. Um, and so it, it can be really full of surprises. So um, we're, I was talking briefly about prices and stuff in terms of what's been going on with the, um, you know, well-caught fish and freight costs and COVID and all that stuff. But um there are some captive bred species out there, not not produced by you guys, that have like these huge, you know, price tags. And you know, I'm, I'm assuming that's because they're they're rare and they're difficult to, um, you know, get to breed and to raise. 
uh, do you guys have any um, fish? I mean, you know, the uh, what is it? The hybrid purple yellow tang has got like a ten thousand dollar price tag, something crazy like that. Any fish uh, like that coming out of ORA that's going to, um, you know, have a uh, more robust price versus some of the other stuff that you guys sell? What do you think? I would say a more robust price, but certainly not a, a $10,000 price. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I think our probably the most expensive fish that we raise would be one of our sharks. Um, and it's the short-tailed nurse shark. Um, and it comes at a fraction of that cost, but you know, not every hobbyist is going to have a, a system size needed, you know, to house a 24 to 30 inch shark. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there are, I would say that we've, we've done a pretty good job of keeping costs low. I mean, uh, there certainly are some fish that, uh, have the value based mainly on their production costs, their, their availability in the industry, um, and so you will see kind of a higher price that reflects that. But overall, the prices definitely come down pretty quick. And we try to keep it, you know, as close to uh, like a wild caught price as we can. And, you know, obviously, you know, the more people we can get into the hobby without kind of big price barriers, the better for everybody. Yeah, I hear you. Um, what about like captive raised yellow tangs and captive raised uh, regal angel fish? You know, I, um, I have a, a regal angel fish that's captive raised that um you know had a hefty price tag it was had some it has some serious miss bars on it unfortunately i'm not gonna be able to keep it because it was being a little naughty and started nipping at all my frags so um it's, it's uh, i found a new home for it but um yeah what, what about those uh those two fish in particular any plans to um you know have captive raised uh, yellow tangs and regal angel fish down the road or I mean, I would say we've got our sights on all those fish. I mean, they are definitely the goals, uh, kind of a very aquaculture facility to be able to produce those and, and keep those for hobbyists. Uh, I personally absolutely love a Red Sea Regal. I mean, I think that is one of the most just breathtaking fish out there. Um, but really, I think our primary focus currently, in addition to kind of the R&D and getting those new species to market, is really just producing more of the species that we currently raise. Um, you know, going back to the pandemic, the one thing that it taught us was that there is a huge demand for just kind of all the regular stuff, the bread and butter stuff, uh, the te the uh, blennies, the gobies. Uh, the world needs more of those. Um, and so we've done, you know, scaled up as much as we can to really kind of help provide that on a global scale. Barry Goss Sr. said, uh, let me know when you have yellow tanks for less than a Benjamin. <laughs> ah, yeah. Yeah. The glory days back when you could get those. Yeah. So cheap back in the day. Yeah, like $30, yellow tangs. I mean, God, beautiful, gorgeous fish. Well, maybe, uh, who knows, maybe down the, lo the line we'll, uh, we'll see that, um, that band lifted in a wide. But, yeah, that's, uh, that's one. Uh, it, it, that touches on a really good point, Keith, that, you know, I think people forget that with aquacultured animals, uh, we are actually really ingrained and intertwined with uh, wild collection. I mean, you can't have aquaculture without it. So... It's very important um, to think about those things when you're um, just thinking about, oh, we should just stop collection in the world. I mean, if that was the case, if those countries stopped uh, allowing wild collection, you would see less aquaculture fish on the market. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Good point. Um, are, are you guys getting requests for certain fish that um, hobbyists would like to see besides the yellow tang and, and uh, Barry Goss Sr. asking for the... Uh... The yellow tangs. Any other requests coming coming your way in terms of uh, what people would like to see? 
in the future? What do you get every day? I certainly think that is our number one request. Uh, I can I think behind probably flame angel. Uh, a flame angel. Mm, nice. um, you know, <laughs> so we are, you know, working extensively with the dwarf angelfish um, and, and trying to get that into more of a commercial scale. Right now we're doing limited batches, um, a few releases, probably, you know, once a year we'll do kind of a limited release of one or two specific types of angels that we're, we're starting production on. Um, and then we get into full scale kind of commercial uh, production on those. Um, I think another one is is wrasses. You know, people mm. really want to see wrasses. Um, I think from a hobbyist standpoint myself, uh, I've pushed us to do some wrasses, kind of bring the R&D over to that, um, as well as more inverts. I, I am a huge fan um, and thinking that every tank needs a good cleanup crew and you need inverts to do that. Yeah, we just recently added kind of one more element to that cleanup crew. We uh, we have a captive bred sea cucumber now that'll be oh, available. Cool. Very nice. Are you getting a couple more requests here uh, for fish? Um, uh, JAH's reef, yellow eyed coal tang, quadruple exclamation oh, yeah. point. Uh, Mike, yeah. Mike Hoppa, copper, bla copper band, butterfly. Those sure. are um, a couple of requests there. Um, so, uh, talking about let's let's talk about coloration of captive bred fish. You know, I, from what I've what I've seen in terms of personally with the Regal, um, what I've seen in person with the uh, captive bred uh, yellow tangs. You know, they they don't seem to be as colorful as their wall caught counterparts i mean obviously the um the uh the clownfish are vivid in terms of their coloration and maybe that's a whole different ball game but why is it like a lot of the uh, the captive bred fish that i've seen out there don't seem to have the same kind of coloration as the wild um, caught variety is there something uh specific in terms of why that is the case or is it just diet or no i'll start real quick just say i'll be saying that you know i'll have to disagree with you i do feel like we're at a really incredible point in marine aquaculture where you are seeing um, fish that are as colorful as kind of their wild counterparts. I mean, I'll, I'll use your example. I mean, I have seen uh, the yellow tanks, for example, are clear, you know, essentially when they're right. small, but I think you're going to see that in the wild. Um, and then I've seen them develop in home aquariums where their color is just as, you know, canary yellow as mm. their wild caught counterparts. Um, certainly in the early days of aquaculture, clownfish uh were kind of pale and peachy in color um and it wasn't until we started really learning about diet um that really that changed everything and that's why you have such very very vibrant uh clownfish now um yeah you know i mean it, it's just an observation that i've made in terms of seeing uh, the fish but a lot of the fish that you were you know that uh, that i have seen are um you know very young fish so maybe that is uh that is true in terms of the uh, the age of the fish has something to do with that i i had no idea that that was the uh, potentially the uh, the case what about um diet you know what do you, what do you guys um you know feed your fish in terms of your facility does it it, it uh, does it depend on the type of uh, fish that you have or are you guys kind of just generally feeding certain types of food to the uh, to the fish any um and, and any recommendations out there to the hobbyists that uh, that have your fish so we like many hobbyists uh feed a variety of foods most of our clownfish, I would say, are raised on a pelletized diet um, with 
nutritional factors that you know we combine here on site, um, you know, kind of to balance everything out, give it the coloration that it has, um, and kind of help it along. And then you also have you know your frozen foods um, and even fresh foods. So you know our sharks. They eat a variety of foods, um, including, you know, fresh foods that you could get from the seafood department at your store. grocery store. Um, but for a majority of our fish, uh, they're raised on a kind of a pre-prepared diet that most hobbyists could find in their local fish store. Um, New Life Spectrum TDO pellets would be great sources for a pelletized diet. Um, hikari frozen feeds would be great uh, just to kind of mix things up a bit. Yeah, we like the hikari mice because they tend to be a much smaller shrimp, um, particularly for your smaller fish. They do great. Yeah, you know, I, I just um, personally, I try to uh, feed a variety. You know, I try to I, I feed um, mice cubes, brine um, cubes, you know, that's all frozen. Then I make my own uh, like homemade fish food, like just pretty much throwing everything, you know, that I can find from the local uh, supermarket in terms of um, just fish. And I, I put it in a uh, like a sure. meat grinder and grind it all up and. And uh, even nori, you know, I, I, I feed all my fish uh, a lot of nori. So I just, um, you know, think that the variety certainly helps. Integral, for sure. Yeah. Frozen flakes, pellets, all that stuff. It's going to be great. And our fish love eating all that stuff. Yep. Um, so another question I had for you guys about the captive um, bred fish is... Um, Oh, what was the question? Oh, yeah. Um, in, in terms of uh, the angelfish, right? I mentioned the um, the regal angelfish that I had that was was nipping at uh, some of my frags. And you guys also have some captive raid uh, cherub uh, angelfish, the coral, coral beauty, the flameback angels. You know, those those fish have been known to, you know, not be totally reef safe, right? With uh, with coral nipping and all that stuff. Dude, I read someplace, uh, I don't know if this is true or not, that um, certain captive raised, raised angelfish might not necessarily have that propensity to nip at corals. Is that a myth? Or it just depends, or, so. or does it depend on the fish itself? Yeah, I mean, I really do feel that uh, it's, it's challenging to breed out learned behaviors that are, you know, millions of years old. So you will see... Uh, even our um, lemon peel angels, you know, we we definitely try to tell Aquarius that they are reef safe with caution. Um, mm. Just like a wild caught one, they may discover, discover that your acan is the most delicious food it's ever had and proceed to just eat it up uh, and then ignore, you know, the pelleted food you tried feeding it. So uh, there's there's definitely going to be some risks, I think, involved. Uh, Aptasia eating filefish, for example, is another one where you've got anecdotes of Aquarius who have them in full-blown acropora reefs and they don't bother anything but you know we've had them in a trade show for 36 hours and they've completely decimated our acropora so mm. <laughs> uh it's just kind of a personality fish to fish uh roll the dice to kind of see which which ones are going to be good and which ones like you had you know that are just kind of a little naughty yeah, you know, I, I, I think I had read that uh, that little tidbit about potentially certain captive raised fish might not necessarily act like their, um, you know, their cousins in the wild. So that, that might have uh, led me to be a little bit bold and to put that. Well, fish I mean, you hear it all the time with clownfish. People are like, oh, you know, because it's captive bred, it doesn't go in anemones. But, you know, we haven't found that to be the case at all. I mean, I think the biggest problem is people try to pair a clownfish with an anemone that it would never associate with in the wild. And so there's really not that like immediate connection 
that you would get with say like a maroon and a bubble tip, you know, which will just go into it immediately. Yeah, a couple of different um, um, comments here about the file fish. Peter T. Not an angel fish, but I picked up an or a white spotted file fish. I'm not gonna. Hey, I'm not. Right, I'm not right there. Right there. I'm not going to try to pronounce a scientific name, but uh, super cool little guys and have been reef safe so far. And then Paul B. Dude, I had a file fish destroy a lot of coral. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll say going back to the, the your earlier commenter, the white spot file fish, I like to say it's almost too reef safe. I mean, they really don't bother anything. Uh, and no one who has one has ever said anything but glowing uh, reviews about them. They're just an incredible little fish. Yeah, I've never, uh, I've never tried a file fish. I never, um, I, I don't know why, but um, yeah, they look really Start cool. With Start with them right there. Start with them, and that's it's not going to. They'll have the most personality in your entire aquarium. And and not going to be uh, nipping at my uh, acros. No, no. You guarantee that. I do. I'll stand by <laughs> that. Yeah. You're probably going to want more than one. I mean, they're just so much fun. Oh, cool. Um, and kind of going back to your earlier question too about those, you know, you asked about, you know, how do we decide what fish to to put into production? Um, I mean, the white spot pygmy filefish is a great example of a fish that's completely not on anyone's radar, really. I mean, it's it's kind of been in the industry, but it's considered a temperate water fish um, from Japan. It's not something that you see on every single uh, Aquarius fish list, um, but we were able to produce it at a commercial scale. Introduce it to Aquarius, and in my opinion, I think it's one of the best fish you can have in your home aquarium. I think it's certainly one of the most popular at every trade show. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what, 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 uh, what is the utility for that kind of fish, just so people know, in terms of what, why would somebody want, besides the personality, have a, that kind of file fish in your tank? That's it, really. Oh, yeah. Or the white spot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they stay small, right? So it's a, it's a pygmy file fish. They stay the top off maybe around two inches at most. Um, great personality, reef safe. Uh, you know, people are always looking for fish that aren't going to eat that, you know, $200 torch that they just bought, or <laughs> I should say $2,000 torch. But, um, so yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of, a lot of personality there. You've got definitely two different types of fish that you want for your aquarium, right? Like something with personality or color or utility. And in this case, he's all personality in a little package. Yep. So a couple more comments about the, um, uh, file fish, uh, Abe from Coral Euphoria. What's up there, Abe? I bought four biota aptasia eating file fish, two, maybe three eat aptasia. One is a definite acro nipper. Um, so I'm not sure what uh, kind of file fish that is, unless there is a specific one that eats um, aptasia. And then, um, yeah, an aptasia eating file fish, or like the matted leather jacket is another name for them. Oh, so that's an actual, that's an actual name is the uh, aptasia eating file fish. Oh, yeah. And if you want utility, boom, there you go. Yeah, that yeah, is all there, utility. There yeah. you go. Um, and Bert Minshew, I have Aptasia eating file fish in both tanks, one in SPS. Huge colonies. They have been great except for one caught living room, one eating sweepers off my space invader. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, which probably isn't a bad thing. That's a, that's a pretty aggressive coral at times. Yes, it is. It's uh, it's an interesting coral. I have I have the uh, the coral <clears throat> in uh, one of my systems, and um, it 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 does not like my display tank. It does fine on my frag tanks, and I think there's uh, probably some fish that are bothering it. That uh, that's why. Um, all right, here's a non-fish related question, Paul B. Do you guys happen to breed um, Bergia nudibranches? I would say we're breeding them. We do, uh, 
we do want to work with them. We do want to bring them to, uh, I mean, they're just, they're similar to your peppermint shrimp, your Aptasia files. There is a need for people to get rid of their Aptasia problems. And they're just one kind of piece of that puzzle. And we would love to be able to have more of those. What, what do you guys breed that you would um, recommend for folks that are trying to get rid of Aptasia? I mean, is the, um, do, do you guys breed an Aptasia eating uh, file fish or do you have, we do. okay, you do. Uh, would you recommend that or like peppermint shrimp can, uh, I've had, I have peppermint shrimp that do eat, uh, Aptasia and, um, you guys also breed, uh, peppermint shrimp, correct? They have two species. What would you say, Doug? Uh, so as we kind of mentioned, you know, an Aptasia file lends the risk of eating your acros, you know, eating your corals. Uh, whereas like the Monaco peppermint shrimp. Uh, we did pretty extensive testing here at our facility to determine whether or not it would actively eat Aptasia, um, and it does. And it, it would be a reef-safe kind of option. I mean, I think you would want, in my personal opinion, as a hobbyist myself, uh, you know, maybe like a one-two kind of punch. You know, I would include peppermint shrimp in there. I would include a, a, a Aptasia-eating filefish, um, and then just be prepared to take the filefish out when your Aptasia problem has gone away. I mean, will they essentially uh, wither away and die because they don't have any aptasia to eat? Is that the uh, the issue or no? Oh, no. I just I think they just develop a fondness for your most expensive corals at times. Oh, yeah, there you go. Uh, the peppermint shrimps just, you know, kind of hide and uh, tend to get eaten by everybody. Yeah. But they do do a very good job um, if you get a good quantity of them. Yeah, if you have like a flame hawkfish or something like that, then uh, you might not have too many of those peppermint shrimp um, around anymore. Right. Um, and if you've got a big 200-gallon aquarium and you put one peppermint in there to, like, help your Aptasia problem, I think you're still going to have an Aptasia problem. Bert says, uh, Keith, I've had these file fish for a long time and both decimated all Aptasia in both tanks. They, they, they keep it from coming back. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Peppermints have been pretty successful for me. Do, um, do peppermints also go after other pests on corals? Like, I've heard that um, they could potentially, uh, you know, help eat in terms of acro-eating flatworm eggs, is is that uh, something that you guys have seen with the peppermints that you raise, or is that something that um, you don't have any evidence of? I wouldn't say we have any kind of evidence of that. We don't think we've ever really tried it to see if that works. Um, a problem to test it on. Yeah. Oh. But, <laughs> yeah, I, I would have my doubts about that. I would think peppermint shrimp are just too seclusive you know they just kind of want to hide and you're not really going to see them out in the open kind of winding their way through your acropora branches gotcha um all right let's switch gears a little bit and uh start talking about some uh clams so you guys you know have um have been i i guess raising um agriculture clams for a for a very long time and you've got um some some great different varieties there you know I mean, years and years ago, when I was keeping reef tanks, it was rather easy for me to keep clams alive. You know, I um, and I think it was because I always bought these um, very large clams. They weren't, um, you know, on the small side. And and um, I haven't tried a clam in like maybe um, four or five years. But I think all the clams that I've tried, you know, more recently were on the small size. Is it just a challenge to, to try to keep a clam alive because of the size, if it's really small? Has anything changed over the years? Or am I just like uh, completely, you know, spastic when it, when, it, when it comes to trying to keep a clam and, and um, 
You know, I mean, I, I, so I guess my question is, has, has anything changed over the years in terms of the hardiness of the clams out there and, and, and the stuff that you guys raise? I don't think so. I, mean, I wouldn't say so at all. Um, I think maybe collection methods may, you know, vary depending on, particularly with wild-caught ones. Um, in my experience, I would say a lot of people struggle more with the larger clams recently. Mm. Um the smaller ones we have, it really kind of depends species to species. So if you were to try yourself, say, a hippopotamus clam, yep. Keith, I think you'd be just fine. I mean, I could either, I could ship it to you in a wet paper towel, uh, it would get lost in the mail, it would find on your doorstep, you put it in your tank, it would still be fine. I mean, that's how tough those, that species are. Um, Duresa is another great species, I think, that most hobbyists, if they're wanting to kind of get their feet wet with clams, yep. would be a great choice. Uh the Maximas and Croseas can be a little bit more sensitive. Um, you know, they're just found in in much higher light areas and, you know, for whatever reason, just tend to be a little bit more sensitive of a species of clam. Um, all right. Back to one quick um, fish question, and then we'll go back to the uh, clam uh, discussion here. But um, who's asking this question? Uh, uh, Paul, Great Bitter Reef. Any ideas for fish that may eat bryopsis? Any, uh, any specific fish that may eat bryopsis? I don't think anything eats bryopsis. I think toothbrushes, elbow grease, garbage uh, can. <laughs> I used I used back in the day, and you know some of your maybe your older listeners will know uh, Kent magnesium. I used that uh, for whatever my understanding was. There was something in there that when you dosed it at certain high levels, uh, it would rapidly deteriorate your bryopsis and only bryopsis. I mean, your soft corals may bleach a little bit, but it was the most effective thing that I've ever used. Peter T is saying uh, lettuce noodle bronx for bryopsis. I also know that some folks have had uh, success using uh, sea urchins to uh, to mow down bryopsis, but those can also mow down corals, push them over at least. Wear them as a hat. Yeah. Um, the clam. The... All right. So Barry Goss Senior said you got to give the clam the the right real estate for it to thrive. Just surviving isn't the right answer. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I've always wanted to like keep a um, an ORA black maxima clam. Ooh. That was like yeah. always my dream, and I always just struck out every time I tried to like put one of those things in my tank. I would have other clams in the tank, and it was just I think it was just maybe the size of the clams that I, that I was getting were. Um, on the smaller side versus the uh, versus the other clams, but um, yeah, I mean, what would you guys say in terms of somebody like me who seems to not have the touch when it comes to clams? What what is the um, the optimal you know kind of conditions for a uh, for a clam? Obviously, uh, sand bed helps, right? You know, any uh, any other um, advice in terms of keeping uh, clams successfully? You know, in in a uh, in a reef tank. I mean, I, I don't particularly think that there is some sort of um, recipe for keeping clams. Um, some people have great success with clams and some people don't. Mm. Um, I do 100% believe, you know, it's 100% going to be dependent on the species um, as well as probably where they come from um, may play a factor as well. And how those tank conditions that you're trying to put them in um, are relative to the environment they came from. Um, so I think the best answer I can give is research is absolute key. Um, 
on the species you plan on keeping. Yeah, I mean, some species also, you know, don't don't do well just immediately being put on the sand bed. Uh, a lot of people try to move clams around. I mean, really, they're they're a very kind of set it and forget it type of animal, in my yeah. opinion. Um, you know, you want to put them up on the maximas or Crisaeus kind of up on your rock work. And just be prepared that you know, where you put it is where it's going to stay. Um, some of your larger, heavier clams, Duraces, Gygus, you know, they'll do fine on your sand beds. Um, I think the more full spectrum lighting you can have will really help. A lot of people love that just blue. solid blue yeah. look. And I think uh, it may be something in the spectrum there that clams just aren't receiving. Um, that a more full spectrum, you know, halide T5 kind of spectrum would really would really help out with. Yeah, I mean that's what I use. I'm not a I'm not into the whole blue light thing. But um what about feeding? Do you do you guys recommend feeding some specific like target feeding clams, a specific food? Shocker, we don't actually feed our clams. Really? Um Yeah, I mean a lot of people ask that, you know, cuz they they've heard that, you know, under 2 inches you got to feed them phytoplankton or else they die. You know, uh we raise them just fine at that size without any additional feeding. And kind of what helped bolster that is there was a guy uh, in Australia who was raising clams, maxima clams, in his carport, um, you know, with made up salt water that he was making himself. He didn't feed his clams. And he's, he's literally raising spat up to the same size we are and didn't feed at all. Um, so it's not going to hurt. You know, you're you're really going to benefit the other animals in your tank. You're going to see an abundance of sponges and feather dusters and copepods. Your clams will get some of that too, but I don't think it's absolutely essential. You know, um, in, in terms of specific clams, you know, a couple of clams that I love. One is a, um, a blue squamosa. And, and you guys have a blue squammy, right? You guys um, have captive raised blue squamosas, correct? We have the, the hybrid. Yeah, so yeah, we don't actually raise any of the blue squamosas, but as you've probably seen in some other videos, we do have this really beautiful uh, Maxima squamosa hybrid out in our coral greenhouse. Oh, wow. I'm going to have to check that out. What is that? So that's, uh, is that like a true cross between the two? Yeah, yeah. Uh, about seven years ago, we had just kind of a fluke uh, combination that came out. Only a handful of these clams uh, appeared, and they really had both kind of features of the Maxima and the Squamosa, and this one in particular was just, it's its breathtaking. It's really, really a beautiful clam. And that's available right now out in stores? Uh, no. <laughs> this, was like a, this was like a one-off. We did sell those when they came out uh, to a very select few people who, you know, who bought, purchased them, uh, but this one we kind of kept for ourselves. What was the uh, what was the retail on that, that uh, clam? Can you share? Oh, I'll be honest, I don't remember, but uh, I'm sure it was several hundred. Yeah, it, it depends on the markets. I mean, you'll find that some stores on the West Coast are completely different prices from the uh, the East Coast. I mean, it's it's pretty all over the place. What about uh, teardrop clams? Is that something that's possible to um, to raise uh, to agriculture, like a teardrop clam? I mean, I, I've, I've had a couple of like gorgeous wild-caught teardrop clams, like blue teardrop clams yeah. that were just like so freaking stunning. At, uh, early 2000s you saw those everywhere yes yeah yeah is that something that you can't uh, raise captively or it's just hard to find them right now i mean where we have our clam farm on the marshall islands i just don't think that pattern and that i think it's like a whole new species right now um uh tridacna noe i think is what it's what it is uh, i just don't think they're available for broodstock essentially out in that area not naturally found 
Yeah, that was like, I was, you know, I think I might have paid like $400 uh, for one of those blue uh, teardrop clams, but man, that was worth it. <laughs> oh, yeah, and that was, it was big too. I mean, that would be cheap now for that clam. I think I got it from um, Reefer Madness. I don't know if you guys remember that store. That was like. Oh, yeah, Reefer Madness, Clams Direct, all those old old guys. Yeah, yeah, I, I got uh, I got it from Reefer Madness, but uh, yeah, that was that was pretty sweet. All right, let's uh, let's talk about Acropora, and and I think my first um, the first time you guys came on my radar really was when when I was uh, you know really getting into some of the named Acropora, like the ORA Red Planet, the ORA Hawkins, the uh, ORA Pearlberry. Those were I mean I remember like you guys kind of like started uh, doing releases of those corals, and and uh, I, I felt like I hit the jackpot when I found a uh, you know some of those corals in my local fish store. Like the ORA Red Planet and and the uh, the Hawkins, I thought those were just um, you know amazing amazing um, corals. And are you guys still farming those classics? Do you do you still have them on your farm? Uh, we do. Uh, those are actually still in active production, um, shipping to local fish stores across the country um, and even globally. Um, well, no, sorry, not the the greenhouse corals, but. Um, yeah, those classics are still up and running and definitely those three, I think are primed to the ORA classics list. Um, still get me excited too. I love a good classic red planet. Hawkins in the sun is stunning. Year round. Every year. Yeah. Year round. Um, and then, you know, the tricolor Velita was another stunner from that classic list as well. And then the shortcake, um, and the shortcake we just re-released last year, um, so yeah, I mean, they're still up and running, probably the same exact lineage that you had <laughs> with that original order in your local fish store. Can can they change in terms of coloration over the years because I remember when I first, uh, you know, had the um my my first ordered red planet coral that I um picked up the frag grow into this gorgeous red tabling uh, you know, colony under metal halides, 400 watt um 20k radium bulbs and you know it was, and it didn't have like a lot of green in it at all you know it was just really bright red and and uh today i still have a uh, I, I broke that tank down so that coral's long gone but i i acquired another red planet from somebody and it's you know the coloration on that um frag was not really close to what it was when i first acquired it, it i mean can it can it morph in different systems and and kind of uh change in terms of the way uh you know, it, it exhibits colors? Uh, it certainly can. I mean, we see it in our coral greenhouse uh, probably once a year. Um, you know, it goes from this super vibrant red kind of through the summertime. Um, but once it hits winter, it starts to get more of that green base. Uh, you start to see that come through. Um, and then right around spring into early summer, again, you start to get that red coloration. So I think it's just um, a warmer spectrum tends to bring out more reds, whereas the blue or the spectrum, you tend to see more of that green. Yeah, and with kind of the variety of different lighting that you know Aquarius have, the different flow patterns they have in their systems, uh, it is kind of remarkable how different corals can look, you know, tank to tank. What, what do you guys think about in terms of um, imposters out there, right? You know, there's uh, the whole coral name game and people get corals and then they slap their own names on them and stuff like that, or else they'll acquire a coral and they'll, they'll put a popular name on that coral just to, you know, for resale purposes. You know, when I first got the, uh, the Aura 8 Pearlberry, 
I, uh, I grew it in a couple of really big colonies. It was just awesome. I mean, it was like probably my, my, one of my favorite corals in, in my, uh, tank at the time sure. was the, uh, the pearlberry. And then, um, you know, when I, uh, when I broke that tank down and, and, and started up again a number of years ago, <clears throat> you know, I was on the, I was on the hunt for another ORA pearlberry, but, um, you know, since then I've, I've, um, I thought I bought a couple of, um, you know, legit frags that actually turned out not to be legit ORA pearlberry frags. How, how do you, what, what are you guys thoughts in terms of that? And in, in terms of, um, you know, potentially non ORA corals getting that label thrown onto them. Go for it. What do you got? I think it happens a lot. Yeah, um, I know it I does. People, people associate, you know, our name with, with value and uh, kind of integrity within the industry, knowing that our corals are going to be al almost. They're getting what they pay for. Yeah. And, and almost indestructible uh, for the most part. And so somebody's willing to pay a, a pretty decent price tag when it has ORA's name on it, as opposed to, you know, just a, a random kind of, this looks like a nice. But Donna, how do they know they're getting an ORA coral? Yeah. So the best way is to order from, you know, a local fish store who is, you know, consistently bringing in ORA livestock. Um, What's that coral growing on though? <laughs> I'm, I'm building up to it. Oh, okay, okay. Um, and then, you know, it's our, our trusted black ORA flag, uh, frag. Oh, uh, yeah. Probably his favorite black plug. I am not a fan of those frag plugs, but they are very unique. That's true. And, and that, that's how you know you get a, an ORA frag with that frag plug. It's, that's a tough frag plug. So going back to your pearlberry example, absolutely. There are a number of kind of fake pearlberries out there. Yeah. If you want the one that is kind of from the pictures, you know, that you remember from your childhood, the glory days. <laughs> You know, make sure it comes on one of those ORA plugs for sure. Yeah, it's um... you can cut it off if you need to, but oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's on that ORA plug uh, and well encrusted. That's a telltale sign that it, it's coming from our facility. So what what is the story behind that plug? Why haven't you guys? Obviously, you've heard the feedback about the plug being a little ornery for uh, for hobbyists, but why have you guys stuck with that plug? It's it's utilitarian, uh, one hundred percent. It's more for us than it is for the hobbyist um, or even the local fish store. Um, you know, similarly to to most people out there, uh, especially aquaculture facilities, we're using egg crate. It's cost effective, um, and when you're when you have trays of you know hundreds of corals, um, you need a way to mount them to where they're not shifting all over the place. Uh, we use surge devices, so. Um, you know, the flow is extensive and it's back and forth. If we had them just simply on frag plugs that didn't fit securely within those squares of the egg crate um, or even discs, they'd be tossed around uh, and they'd probably be in rough shape by the time they got to you. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Um, Dave uh, just said, I recently picked up an Ore Laura's Purple Polyp Acropora from TSA. That's a good one. I've never had that one. Um, I, uh, I remember I used to have, and I think a from Coral Euphoria has this one, the, um, ORA purple plasma, right? That's an ORA. Oh, yeah. That's a really cool, yep. uh, coral. And, um, are you guys, uh, any, any, um, any new and exciting, uh, acros that you guys are farming new releases that potentially, uh, us hobbyists will be seeing out in the marketplace soon or. Should be your one. Um, my favorite is. I don't know. I, 
Juicy Grape. Uh, no, okay. Well, Juicy Grape, I really love the name because, you know, I came up with it. But what's it called? Uh, you know, I the Juicy Grape. Juicy Grape. Yeah. What is a Juicy it's, Grape? Uh, I believe it's a description. I believe it's an Acropora humulus. Uh, so you get those real nice, thick, broad, finger-like branches, real compact, but you're getting like the most intense purple, the most intense green in between the branches. And it's fuzzy all the time. Yeah, no, it's a great piece. People are going to really love it. It's it's interesting because uh, I think I was just talking about this with the uh, prior guest. I can't remember what conversation I was having, but just you never see the humulus out there anymore. That's a very, you know, it used to come in like wild caught. so cool. And uh, yeah. you just don't see that in terms of the... Um, the aquaculture corals. That's awesome. I'm going to have to try to track one of those down. Yeah. Um, so here's here's a, a question that Rolly's uh, Reef had, uh, Reef Ranch had back at the beginning of the show. I know ORA frags corals differently, basically splitting frags in half, then let it grow to double repeat. Just curious if they can explain this methodology instead of growing out large colonies. Is, is that a uh, correct uh, assumption, statement? Yeah, I would say that's fair. I mean, your your standard aquaculture culture model is to bring in a bunch of wild colonies, grow them out, cut those branches off, frag those, and then, you know, you're done. Um, the pieces that we have in production, some of them have been in production for the last 30, 40 years. I mean, they've, yeah, they've been just frags of frags of frags. And for our model, that, that seems to work really well for us. Um, and then we're able to move pieces around if we lose you know, a tray of corals to some freak heat wave or a hurricane or something, you know, we've, we've still got backup frags and rather than, you know, lose the whole colony and then that's it. We don't, we can't find that anymore. Um, question, general question from ghouls. Does ORA have a distributor in Canada? Yeah, we've got several. Yeah. Okay. I would say mostly in the kind of more Toronto, Ottawa region. Um, but we do have partners kind of on the, uh, the other coast as well in British Columbia. Gotcha, gotcha, um, folks. Feel free to drop uh, any questions in the uh, in the chat for uh, for both Jordan and uh, and Don. I really appreciate them um, being on the live stream and answering our um, questions. Uh, question from Lou Reef or a um, okay, that's not a question. Talking about the uh, success with uh, Ganiapora, has has that been something that um, you guys have um, you know? I haven't really been following in terms of what you guys have been doing with the, you know, with, with, with Ghani and Pura. I mean, I know personally, in my experience, it's been a lot easier to keep uh, Ghani and Pura, Alvia Pura these days because it's all like aquaculture. Is, is that the case with you guys? You know, I, I know years ago when, you know, you would go to a local fish store, there would be like these wild flower pot corals that come in and would look fantastic. There were like full colonies, yet they were almost impossible to keep in a tank for more than four or five months. Is um, in, in terms of what you guys are farming for Ghanis and Alvies, is that um, you know pretty much it, it become a lot easier to produce and to sell those types of corals? Say kind of our iconic uh, or a red Ghaniapora is is kind of fits that that bill right there. It's it's essentially bulletproof. It's one we've had in production for many 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 years. Uh, I think it's the one coral that customers always say. You know, similar experiences to you where, you know, they've tried the wildcat ones. They just don't do well. Our red one is bulletproof. I mean, it does very, very well long term. Gotcha. And it's gorgeous. It's red with little purple dots in the uh, the tentacle. It's fantastic. Very cool. Um, talk to us about, uh, you know, so we're talking about uh, 
Gani's and, and Alviapur. What else do you guys have in terms of, um, you know, uh, LPS and, and soft corals that you guys uh, are raising captively? That is your favorite. Oh, uh, I mean, let's start with LPS, you know. Um, we have a number of LPS coming from our Marshall Island facility. Um, you know, we've started with clams and now we're, you know, doing SPS as well as LPS out there uh, and a number of soft corals. Um, I would say, you know, we have lobophilias coming in now um, that we're mariculturing, you know, out there. And then we have torches and hammers. Those are everybody's, you know, favorite LPS. Pectinias. Uh, yeah. Hmm. And then as far as soft for corals, chalices, great. Yeah. Uh, we've been working with gargonians for soft corals, mushrooms of many different types and colors. Uh, a lot of your sarcophytons. So you've got your toadstools, you've got your leathers, you've got your simularias. Zoanthids. Zoanthids, yeah. You name it, we've got it. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's great. I mean, it's obviously uh, great to have that kind of, uh, you know, variety of corals available that you can uh agriculture and make available to the uh to the local fish store so yeah yeah and it's it's now more easier than ever to have just a completely 100 percent aquacultured aquarium you know where nothing came from the wild i think uh, a soft coral is just as important as you know the the sps and the lps um in yeah, terms of the the hobby they're overlooked all the time but man they look good. It, it gets you into the hobby, you know, who didn't start out with green star polyps or, you know, a, a small patch of Xenia and watch it explode in their tank, um, but be so like enthralled with that success that they wanted to expand into LPS. They wanted to learn how to maintain their systems better so that they could eventually have a full SBS tank or a mixed reef. I mean, a full soft coral tank is just as striking as a full SPS tank. You know, it offers that color, that movement, um, and overall, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and they're a lot, can't go wrong. and they're a lot easier to keep. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, so there, there's a question here from, um, Sammy 31 D about, uh, using those large surge systems in your facilities they were so cool question is are you guys still using them and I, you know i think that's a good springboard to kind of get into you know how you guys uh you know in terms of what kind of equipment you use to uh you know uh grow your corals but uh, you guys still using the, uh, the large surge uh, systems yeah, i mean i think people would be very surprised to know that you know we we run our coral farm with very simple and very similar uh, pieces of equipment than a home aquarist. Sometimes I would say far less technical. Uh, I mean, you've got people now with all the different toys you can get, but really for water motion, yeah, we do use the uh, Carlson surge device. Fantastically simple, but it moves a tremendous amount of water with very little uh, electrical usage. Yeah. Um, when it comes to lighting, you know, this close to the ocean where we're currently located, any LED we would try to do would just turn into a very expensive paperweight very quickly. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just a very caustic environment with all the salt. Um, and we're very fortunate that we live where we do in Florida, where it's sunny every day. So that takes care of a lot of the needs of, of our corals out in the greenhouse for sure. Uh, so not you really you got, do a lot of. So it's natural sunlight is how all your corals are essentially. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's it's really remarkable going out to the greenhouse. I mean, just seeing the natural colors, you know, without any kind of uh, influence from a, a lower spectrum light um, or higher spectrum, I should say, 
uh, it's really, really pretty. What, what kind of par are those corals getting, you know, with the natural song? And, and can you guys moderate that par by, I guess, putting up uh, screens or something? They, they get all the par. 10,000 par. I don't know. <laughs> it's a lot. It really is intense. I mean, it's um, we, we utilize screens over some corals and then sometimes double screens. Mm. Uh, sometimes we have to move corals from different locations because the sunlight is just too intense. Um, I would say that we don't kind of worry about par on a day-to-day basis. Um, corals grow just fine. I mean, they're getting blasted with plenty of light. Yeah. Yep. So, okay. We talked about lighting flow. What about like calcium and alkalinity, uh, additions? What do you guys utilize there? Fortunately, we're located where we are. We have access to a saltwater well. So the water we're using uh, contains kind of everything we need kind of all in one. So we're not really having to add additional things uh, to help these corals grow. So in, in, terms, of so, in, in terms of supplementing al- alkalinity and, and uh, calcium, you guys are not really doing much other than uh, water changes. Is that what, what I'm hearing? I mean, it's, it's remarkably stable. Wow. Interesting. And what about like nutrient uh, control? Uh, I mean, if anything, we have to feed some of the fish that live in these coral troughs. Um, But there's no real kind of active, we got to get phosphates out. We got to get high nitrates out. I mean, we're moving a lot of water through these systems, uh, but they're not operating on the same kind of closed uh, environment like a home aquarium. So we're not seeing, we're not having to do any kind of nutrient control really so what what kind of exchange are you guys doing with water that you're bringing in close from where you are i mean is it uh like on a percentage basis like if you're calling this a water change what kind of percent water change would you guys be doing on the facility every week five percent ten percent oh that's a good question i mean a lot of the water that we are removing is just being used transporting fish from building to building um and then being replenished as kind of a water exchange um, you know, we do filtration flushes and stuff like that, but, uh, I mean, the goal for our facility for sure is to use as little water as possible. I mean, so that, that number is definitely decreasing over time. What about like coral food and, and aminos? Do you guys, uh, dose that stuff? It would add a, probably a considerable amount of money to our operating costs if we were having to do that. But no, these corals, the clams, uh, they're really doing a remarkable job just growing with, uh, kind of the available nutrients in the water. Gotcha. And so no, uh, like trace elements or, or anything, Are you guys doing a lot of ICP testing or just not concerned? So we do have a very rigorous testing. You know, we've got, um, a lot of, it's almost daily, you know, where they are testing all the parameters, just making sure everything's fine. But I mean, remarkably things stay just fine with, with the water that we are using. Uh, Blue Reef is wanting specifically in terms of the water chemistry, what do you guys, do you know what you're keeping your alkalinity and nitrates at? Natural seawater? I would say, yeah, it's very close to natural seawater. If anything, our salinity tends to be a little bit lower. Um, Maybe, you know, 1.021, 22 at times. Uh, But everything else I think you're going to find very, very kind of online with traditional um, aquarium parameters. Gotcha. All right, some random questions from the viewers here. Uh, Red Slacker, do they think there will ever be a time when the hobby is 100% aquaculture? Oh, for sure. I think so. No. I think I think there will be a... The hobbyists no, bringing in 
No, no, it was like the hobby being out of it. I, okay, I thought he meant like no. hobbyists, like having fully aquaculture systems. They, you can do that now, but and that's what I was going to okay, say. Yeah. yeah, but as, as I, I hope we don't get to the day yeah. where we are completely dependent on aquaculture because our uh, options will be very limited as far as the animals we would be able to have. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Lou Reef, how did Joe the Coral get its name? <laughs> oh man! Uh, God, what is that story? Um, it's a cool-looking coral, cool-looking uh, acro. Oh, it's yeah. a beautiful piece. Uh, gosh, I don't remember where that came from. I want to say it was named for one of the employees in the coral greenhouse. I think that's what I remember. You know, I might have googled that one at one point, um, and and uh, I think you, I think you might be right. It might have been named after an employee or something. Yeah, and I mean, some of the names, you know, are just kind of have fun origins. Um, you know, Laura's Purple Polyp, for example, was named after one of our employees here. Um, I like the Carl because as ridiculous as it is, you know, it's if you're a Walking Dead fan, uh, there are plenty of memes out there where Rick is calling his son Carl, Coral. And so we just we it's Carl for the Coral. So we'll, we'll, we'll explain later. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Paul B is uh, wondering what's the highest end ORA acropora that you guys have. So I guess which which uh, ORA acro right now is fetching the highest price, or is there one? Or are they? Pretty, I always recall them being pretty close to price to one another. Proberry. Yeah, Proberry. I think will always be like that top end. Um, it's extremely slow growing. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, but really it's, it's at the end of the day, it's a very slow growing coral. I mean, similar with Oregon tort, we get asked that all the time. When's that going to be available? Uh, it is painfully slow growing. And so it just, it's going to take a long time to get, you know, we could sell two or three frags, but then we wouldn't have anything for the next five years. So the goal with any of the pieces we raise are, we have to be able to have these at a commercial scale so that, you know, everyone can get one if they want one. I thought I saw some prices for the ORA Pearlberry, like the two to three hundred dollar range. Is that uh, does that sound like totally out of whack, or is that uh, possibly? Uh, that's pretty close. Really? Wow. I think retail, yeah, that that's about right. Man, I remember back when you guys released that uh, Pearlberry. I think it was like a forty or fifty dollar uh, acro, right? It wasn't. Uh, I don't think it was like that crazy price, but maybe it's because of, there's all these uh, imitators out there these days, and you got to make sure you get the real deal. Yeah, I mean that definitely comes into play for sure. Um, Paul B is the Easter egg chalice ORA. Easter yeah, egg chalice. Just a beautiful production. Still production. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you, Wave. Coral, if you're the coral euphoria for that super chat, Abe, really appreciate it, man. Um, folks, any other uh, questions for our guest tonight? Just uh, drop in the uh, in the chat. Do you guys have anything else? That, did, did we uh, miss anything that uh, you uh, you guys have in terms of products that um, you wanted to talk about? I think we've, we've covered a wide uh, array of what you guys produce, but um, yeah. I have a question. I have a question for you. You got a yeah, question for go. me. Uh -oh. So, yeah. So like earlier in, in our discussion, we were talking about, you know, what hobbyists are requesting in terms of fish that uh, they want to see us produce. What's that one fish that you'd like to see us produce? Oh, there you go. 
What about you, Keith? Um, well, yeah, you know, hmm. In terms of captive-raised fish, wrasses would be pretty cool. You know, and, and yellow tanks. For sure. Which one? I love the uh, leopard wrasses, you know, so the... Oh, okay. um, Black leopard wrasse, black spotted leopard wrasse, that's the real name. Uh, the African leopard wrasse, and uh, the Chiote leopard wrasse. Oh, you yes. like those little guys? That's, that's an awesome. I mean, they're very, very hard to uh, keep. I mean, yeah, what's the likelihood of you guys being able to, um, you know, raise those captively? Are they, they, are they challenging wrasses? Especially we, we talked about this the other day. Yeah, I mean, I would say wrasses are, are challenging. I mean, at least from a broodstock perspective. Uh, at least from my understanding, they all want to become male. And so you get a bunch of broodstock in, you have them in a tank. Before you know it, you have only males. They only fight. And it, it's just that's that's the struggle. That's the, the, the barrier we have to kind of get over is getting these fish to not change their sex. Yeah. Getting a couple more requests here for fish. Uh, Anthony Martinez, Moorish Idol. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Jose Guido. Yeah, Jose Guido minus plenty. Do you got you guys don't have a minus plenty? We've definitely worked with them before. I mean, they're they're a fun little fish. Um, the reef farmer. Any Alicorus ras? Am I pronouncing that correctly? Ooh, what's what are the common names for that one? I, mean, I recognize this the genus, but oh, here's a one I, I love. What, uh, what... Blue reef Japanese uh, mass swallowtail angelfish. I love those fish. How uh, oh, yes. how hard would it be to uh, raise those captively? Uh, that would be more of a question for our production team. I mean, they're the ones who are kind of faced with these challenges. Um, you know, going back to your earlier point, I mean, it is, you know, all the easy fish typically, I feel like, have already really been done. I mean, the real struggle now is finding those fish that are kind of on the, the peripheral, the fish that people don't think about is uh, even worse uh, raising in aquaculture, but I think there's a lot of possibility out there. There's a lot of, um, there's still a lot of discoveries to be made, especially with the particular foods that these fish need at certain life stages. Yeah. Uh, Bert Minshew, uh, Australian copper bands. So, uh, yeah, well, there's a lot of cool fish out there that, uh, there are, there's so many, there are. We're constantly making lists, you know. I just sent him a list the other day, fish to consider. Um, so, I mean, we're we're constantly thinking about new introductions into our brood stock and how we can get those into a commercial scale. So we hear you. We know what you want. We're trying. We'll get there. Yeah. Uh, Nyoko, pronounce that right, Ras is a good one. Mm-hmm. Okay. More of the uh, East... I'm <laughs> having a real hard time pronouncing these, these names. The uh, East Canenis... Blennies? Oh, okay. He's Canias? Yeah, so that's like um, uh, the Red Sea member Blenny. That's the one that we always get asked about. When's that one going to be back again? Yeah. Hopefully one day. Yeah. So what what do you think would be like the top three on the list right now? You mentioned yellow tanks are, are always requested, but uh, what would you say besides uh, three others besides the yellow tank? Top three that are requested, yeah. or the top three that we think. Um, How about both? You know, kind of. Okay. okay. Um, top three requested. I mean, definitely would be every tang. It's it's not just yellow tangs. Um, I mean, we should yellow tang, gem tangs, powder blues, hippos. I mean, 
All tangs. Let's just put tangs in. Nobody's asked us for the Scopus tang, but I want a Scopus tang. Mm. I wouldn't mind that. I wouldn't yeah. mind a, you know, a coal tang either. Um, I, I think any coal tang or any tang uh, would would be a success, um, especially if it's on a commercial scale. Yeah. Um, and then second in line to that would be probably angels. Always angels. Any of the angels. Pygmy angels. Any of the angels, and then. I have had ruby red dragonets oh. uh, brought up a number of times. Those guys uh, are awesome. Past and, yeah. and maybe soon. Yeah. You know, here's one that I haven't uh, uh, seen yet before in the comments. Uh, Sammy31D, Hardy, Sunburst, Antheus. Yeah, what about Antheus? I mean, I know Antheus, a lot of Antheus are very tough to keep, you know, in a uh, in a reef uh, tank. How, uh, how Another one of those, those kind of wrasse-like fish where they just, they all turn male. Um, but we did have a really good run of your liar tail Antheus. Mm. Um, that was two years ago, two years ago at this point. Um, stunning fish, great fish. One of those kind of quintessential iconic fish you always see in pictures and, you know, you'd love to see in your aquarium with those big schools. Uh, and they are so adorable when they're tiny. Yeah. Uh, the reef farmer Potter's angel under three. Mm. I was just asked about that today. Yeah, I like potters. Where do they go? Why don't people, more people have that fish? They're so cool. I love potters angels. I it mean, boy, they're not actually a Japanese pygmy angel. Um, see, Donnie asked me that question. You're getting a lot more answers than uh, you bargained for there, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, one one thing I haven't, you know, even mentioned in this stream is like. The marine beta. We get that one all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Bengai Cardinals. Mm-hmm. Another is one that we've had in production and we could literally We could retire on Bengay Cardinals alone. We could. <laughs> um Barrett Gross Senior, seen you guys at Reef of Palooza in Orlando. Love the knowledge you guys freely shared. Very cool. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I saw you guys at Magna. You guys had an awesome little setup there at uh at Magna. You you guys pretty much try to hit as many trade shows as you can, possibly in a year. I know there's a lot of them. You know, I'd say no. No, uh, as far as showing, yeah, uh, we don't show at many. It's typically like two or three shows a year. Um, but we love to walk shows, you know, just as hobbyists. And it's great. I mean, that, that's for me, like Macna in particular, uh, just a fantastic time to sit and talk with Aquarius. I mean, I'm a Aquarius myself. It is awesome to just nerd out and talk about fish for a while. Yep. Corals even. Yeah, that was the first Macna I'd ever been to. So it was really cool to finally oh, wow. uh, get to one. Yeah, it was a lot of it was it was great too because of all the uh, the different uh, talks and and had a great lineup of um, speakers. So, yeah, anybody that um, you know is was thinking about going to a Magna, definitely uh, check it out. But all the other shows are great too. You know, the Reef of Paloozas are good, and um, I've never been to a um, what's the uh, the show? Yeah, I've never been to an Aquashella show. It seems like those are it's uh, it's an ex it's an experience. Front. <laughs> have you guys uh, have a, a freshwater a freshwater bone in you still um yeah. you know aquashella is a very great mix for that freshwater and salt water yep right and you guys don't do any freshwater at this point right no 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 plans uh, no <laughs> that was a hard no i mean no i mean why not i mean we 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 have a guy here who who's very passionate about cichlids and so we we dabbled with some cichlids uh and some discus um, but more of kind of a pet project. I mean, the whole state of Florida is very good at aquaculturing uh, your, your freshwater fish and cichlids. Yeah. 
So what is the uh, what is the future hold for ORA? You know what uh, what can we expect uh, years down the road? Is is there a um, a grand plan in terms of expansion? Or are you guys going to just kind of um, you know hold the line and and keep coming along like you like you are right now? Is there any any um, you know thing that uh, you guys can share about potentially the future and some changes or no? I mean, really. Our policies have been kind of what's kept us going for the last 25 years. You know, our goals are to, to support uh, brick and mortar stores, uh, provide a aquaculture alternative to, you know, the home-based aquarist. Um, if anything, I'd like to see us expand more in kind of our mariculture items, you know, expanding our connection with some of the um, uh, clam farmers out in the South Pacific, you know, really providing a source of income for them and a source of purpose for kind of the animals that they can raise um, and and then making sure that these animals are, are finding, you know, good quality homes here in the United States. Um, anything that uh, in terms of corals that um, that you guys are not captively raising that you would like to get into, you know, is, is there any corals out there that uh, have eluded you to this point? I mean, at some point we've tried everything, but I mean, some of the ones that I think would make people happy, uh, you know, scalenias, um, any of those kind of big fleshy, you know, uh, symphilias, any of those kind of big fleshy, really hot um, LPS right now are really great. But, you know, on a production scale, they, they're very slow growing. You know, they're not the same as uh, growing an aquaporifrag. Uh, and I think that's kind of sad. I mean, they, they take up a lot of real estate too. Um, you know, we have currently one variety of ACAN on our list. Um, and I think if we had a, a wider variety of ACANs, it may, it may kind of entice those local fish stores to bring in more of a variety as well. Um, I'm an ACAN lover, so I'm, I'm going to go for the ACANs every time. But um, those, I think, if we were able to find broodstock of, you know, torches, um, torches, frog spawns, hammers, yeah, those would be definitely great to do as well. But again, takes up a lot of real estate and time yeah for sure yeah bird mint you mentioned uh acanthos you know the uh acanthophilias the uh meat corals yeah yep. yeah pretty uh yeah i mean a lot of the corals that we we raise and you can buy at a store i mean it takes years to get to that point right i mean better part of 10 years at times to really have enough uh, sustainable population going where we can sell, you know, hundreds all across the United States and still, and not run out. Right. Yep. For sure. All right, guys. Well, listen, I think we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up. Do you, any, any final words for folks? I mean, obviously we talked a lot about local fish stores. So if, uh, if folks want to find, uh, ORA, um, corals and fish, they should probably ask their local fish store if they're not already bringing in your stuff to, to do so. And you could also get them online, right? Yeah, so that, and don't be afraid to reach out. You know, Don and I, you know, I, people are always surprised when they call us and we answer the phone. Uh, <laughs> you know, so by all means, call us, let's chat, you know, let's help you get what you're looking for into your home aquarium where we coordinate with just a vast network of stores across the United States, uh, in Canada, Puerto Rico, uh, other countries even. So just give us a ring, send us an email, uh, reach out on Instagram. We'll uh, covered. Yep, we got you. I might be calling you guys for an authentic uh, Pearlberry. Pearlberry, we'll get you a, we'll find you a black and white Maxima as well. <laughs> yeah, that would oh, be awesome. Of that would be awesome. 
All right. Well, listen, I really want to thank both Jordan and Donna for uh, being on today's live stream. And I also want to thank both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine for sponsoring the uh, the show. And again, I want to thank you folks for tuning in. Really appreciate it. Um, finally, a um, big thank you to Paul, the moderator. Also want to let you know that all episodes of Wrapping with the Reef Bum are available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon. My next Wrapping with the Reef Bum live stream will be on Thursday, October 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with Philip Rock from uh, Rosh from KP Aquatics. It should be another great show. Uh, the full upcoming schedule of guests is on reefbum.com under the YouTube section. And I will also be having a live coral show right here on YouTube on Sunday, October 23rd at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So please tune in for that. Until then, be safe, be well, and we will see you next time.